Welcome to the Yale Law Journal podcast. My name is Kaveri Sharma, the Volume 131 Yale Law Journal podcast editor. On each episode of this podcast, I am joined by one of my journal colleagues to dive deeper into a piece published in Volume 131 of the Yale Law Journal. We speak to the author of the piece to explore their arguments off the page and bring in stakeholders and practitioners to the conversation to discuss the real-world implications of the legal scholarship published by the journal. This podcast is intended to be for anyone and everyone with an interest in the law and legal scholarship. Whether you're a tenured law professor or a high school student, we hope this podcast exposes you to the ongoing debates in legal academia and that you will enjoy listening. In this episode, my co-host Charles Jetty and I speak with Salome Filyun, the author of A Relational Theory of Data Governance, and Uzoma Nkwanta, a partner at Elias Law Group. We talk about how big data is commodified and treated under existing law, and the potential for data to be a force for positive social change. Professor Filyun argues that existing legal regimes in the U.S. treat datafication, or the process of transforming knowledge about people's activities into a commodity, as primarily a question of individual privacy and contract adequacy. Prevailing legal debates have centered around whether data mining entities provide an individual with enough information for that individual to be able to contract away their right to their own data privacy. But this approach, under existing law, fails to adequately grapple with how governments, corporations, and other entities actually use data. In the real world, an insight about an individual person, for example, their coffee buying habits, is rarely important. What matters is the trends and patterns created by aggregating the behavior of hundreds, thousands, or even millions of people. Professor Phil Yoon calls this data relations and contends that law and policymakers must develop legal regimes that properly contend with the reality of how data is used relationally. One goal of any data governance legal regime that accounts for relational use of data should be to store and utilize data in a way that does not exacerbate nor replicate existing social inequality. We discuss how there is tremendous potential to use data to develop what Professor Filyun calls digital counterpower. For example, we talk about how we can perhaps use data to fight climate change by producing CO2 emission data sets, help workers by crafting contracts that put workers in control of their own data collected by their employers, and maybe even using data in litigation to advance democracy, as Uzoma Nkwanta and his team have been doing in their litigation on behalf of the Democratic Party at Elias Law Group. This episode answers the questions, how does the law treat data? How should the law treat data? And in a world that is only becoming more datafied, how can big data actually be a force for good? Salome Filyun is an assistant professor of law at University of Michigan Law School. Professor Filyun's work centers around the law governing digital information, that is, data governance and how to better align legal protections of data with the economic processes that drive their erosion. She is the author of A Relational Theory of Data Governance, a feature in the Yale Law Journal. In her piece, Professor Filyun argues that the data collection practices of large and powerful technology companies aim to derive and produce population-level insights regarding how individuals relate to one another, not atomized individual insights. 
The law and academic discourse, however, focuses narrowly on individuals. Professor Phil Yoon's important piece challenges this prevailing legal approach to data governance. She argues that data governance law could benefit from a far more democratic approach. We are delighted to have Professor Phil Yoon with us today to discuss her piece. Thank you for being here, Professor. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So before we dive into the substance of your piece, I think our listeners could benefit from some background information about datafication and the conventional approach U.S. law takes towards data governance. So at the most basic level, what is datafication and what is data governance? As I write in the piece, um, I, I really proceed from the uh, notion of datafication as the transformation of knowledge about people's activity, so both their social behavior, but also just kind of the way that people go about living their lives into a commodity. And here I'm sort of following a, a lot of other scholars, um, most notably another le legal scholar, Julie Cohen, basically has a very similar definition of datafication. So I'm just kind of taking, taking that kind of understanding of datafication. Um, but, you know, what do we as kind of the legal community focused on this stuff mean by that, the transformation of knowledge about people into a commodity? Um, well, the kind of datification of social behavior that I'm interested in can be understood as the continual creation and maintenance and exploitation of these digital imprints of everyday lives being lived at scale, such that these digital imprints can be fed into various computational processes for a variety of commercial ends. So let's consider an example. I go to the cafe, I buy a cup of coffee. Now, I can go to the cafe and buy a cup of coffee, buy a cup of coffee with cash, or I can pay with my Apple wallet connected to a phone, and I can tap it on a square payment terminal. And in these two examples, my activity is exactly the same. I'm buying a cup of coffee. But in the latter example, that activity has been datafied. So there's now a digital imprint of this action um, sort of potentially available to a number of actors. It's potentially available to the cafe, my credit card company, Square, et cetera. And this action, that kind of digital imprint, can be bundled with the imprints of other people buying coffee at this cafe or other cafes. And we can sort of bundle all of that together and analyze and use those insights in all sorts of ways. So we can say, oh, we can really figure out the best rate to give this cafe a commercial loan because we really understand how people are buying coffee. Or we can make all kinds of insights about where New Yorkers are buying coffee if we look at this stuff. Or we can say, oh, we can really understand when Salome is feeling sleepy <laughs> based on when she's buying a cup of coffee. So we can do all kinds of things with this. But, but my, the underlying point is that we've now datafied this, this sort of human activity of buying a cup of coffee. So how does the U.S. law kind of presently like approach governing this whole process or this datification. Um, so I'm happy to get a little bit more specific, but basically we, we govern it primarily with a kind of a background consumer contract regime. So we have contracts. I, I agree to a terms of terms of service with Square. When I use Square, I sign terms of service with my credit card company. I sent, enter into all kinds of terms of service contractual relationships with Apple, um, I happen to own an Apple iPhone, um, and those contracts govern a great deal of this, this, these data flows. So we have, we have contracts, and because I'm a consumer, we have a consumer protection regime that sort of governs um, or sort of polices the boundaries of those contracts so that these um, 
you know, businesses that I enter into um, honor the terms of those those contracts. And then we have a pastiche of background privacy rules that particularly in certain sectors um, sort of have additional uh, rights or obligations. So I'm talking about transaction data. There's a number of um, finance-specific privacy rules that we have. So um, that, that also kind of additionally approach um, or, or sort of govern that data flow. Um, now, the argument I make is that presently, we don't really take datafication as this general economic transformation as seriously as we should in those sets of laws. So we govern the collection, processing, and use of personal data, as I mentioned. Um, but we generally focus on questions like, did the data subject, in my example, me, <laughs> consent to the data collection or not? Are data processes reasonably protected from being hacked? So we have data breach laws. Um, or does this particular use of data collected from someone violate the terms under which they granted consent to use that data? So again, there's that, that's the consumer protection thing. Um, were there unfair and deceptive acts and practices and how that data was used based on the contract that I signed? But we don't really regulate data, I argue, with an eye to its role as this kind of primary economic input in the information economy. And the way that this mass economic function of datafication results in um, the reproduction of social relations via data flows. To that end, you mentioned in your feature that the law and academic discourse surrounding data governance focuses overly narrowly on individuals. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so this kind of follows very nicely from the earlier conversation. So I, I think we tend to think of data governance as uh, in an overly individualistic way, um, really in two ways. So the first is how we reduce legal interests in information. So the, the kind of thing that we can, at the point of collection, consent to. <laughs> the second is, is why we think we ought to have robust legal interests and protections for people in their social information. And this really goes to the um, kind of background, kind of moral reasons why we grant people legal interests in information to begin with, which really has a great deal to do with protecting their autonomy. Um, so the reason that we think that people should consent to being um, tracked or having their information collected about them is because we care about this ability for people to form self-knowledge, to cultivate a relationship to their inner self, um, and then to act or to express their knowledge and their preferences in the world. So we think that if we just were to extract a lot of information about people and we weren't going to get their permission first, we'd sort of erode or break down that sense of autonomy um, and that sense of people being able to act and express their own will in the world. Um, so I agree with both of those um, views. Um, but again, I think given kind of this mass economic activity that is datafication, this picture of why we care about data and why we legally govern it is incomplete. Um, again, I, I, datafication is really uh, a process by which data relates us to one another. And that means that even under the best case gold standard consent scenario, we are functionally consenting on behalf of one another all of the time. So if we go back to the coffee example, I go and I buy a cup of coffee with a square. Um, I consent, I'm like, yes, datafy my coffee usage. I want to understand, you know, I also want to go analyze all the data about how I'm drinking coffee. The problem is that the way that that information is being bundled and analyzed and used isn't just to understand, like to put the Salome coffee drinking activity in the Salome folder so that people know what Salome is up to. Like, no, 
the way that datafication functions as an economic process is to allow people to make population-based insights. So, you know, how are millennials that work on the Upper West Side drinking coffee? What are the typical people in this neighborhood's coffee drinking behavior? What are their habits? How can we therefore derive an accurate um, commercial loan prediction for this coffee cafe, this coffee company? So what that means is that all sorts of interests and uses and people um, and entities are implicated in me consenting um, to use this information. And you know, again, as a legal scholar, we tend to think of consent as the kind of thing that works when like I am consenting on behalf of myself. And my point here is that functionally given datafication, we are just irreducibly consenting on behalf of one another all of the time. So that's kind of the, the, the legal interest problem here. And it really connects to the, the second problem. This consenting on behalf of another is an issue for all of these third parties, right? It's an issue for the other people on the Upper West Side, it's an issue for the cafe, right? But, but the risk of that sort of non-representation in, in, um, in this legal regime that we have for data flows, which is consent, that risk does not fall evenly. It leaves particularly vulnerable to that kind of erasure all of the people that occupy a more marginal, precarious, or dangerous positions in our social structures, where not taking those interests into account isn't just like, oh, it's annoying and we probably should have had a contract there. There are certain data flows where not taking those sorts of interests into account um, means that overriding social interests of great import are not being represented in how we govern data and data flows. And this is really the social inequality point, that datafication isn't just a problem if it erodes my relationship to my inner self, but also when data flows conscript us into the project of one another's oppression. Um, and when those choices um, made by people who convey maybe more secure positions in our social structure are really, um, you know, often made for things like convenience, but, but have like profound um, and far more sort of um, significant downstream effects on other people on the basis of these sorts of social relations that we're, we're, we're reinscribing. So can you, can you give us an example? How does datafication in the way it's currently conceived in our law exacerbate social inequality? How does that actually work in practice? So it shouldn't surprise us that a big problem with datafication is social inequality. Um, once we understand data relations as sort of digitized social relations, because right now a lot of our social relations are typified by social inequality. So the way that social reality is marked for us is sort of primarily marked by difference on the basis of group membership, like race or sex or gender. And it's marked by our hierarchical placement in social structures on the basis of our class or on the basis of our national citizenship. So the relationships we have vis-a-vis -vis other people that form the basis of our social world, they're marked by all kinds of inequalities. And as these analog social relations are materialized by these data flows, these data flows in turn are materializing these social inequalities. Now, exacerbation is of course a bolder and more difficult claim to substantiate. So that's not just that data flows are um, rematerializing existing social inequalities, but that they, in that rematerialization are at times making them worse, they're exacerbating them. So I do think that is sometimes the case. Um, that's especially, I think, the case when social relations in analog form were subject to um, greater regulatory or legal or kind of social attempts to like equalize those social relations, that we were experiencing pressure from the legal system or from political activists to kind of equalize those social relations, um, but that have sort of slipped those countermeasures in their digital form. 
And so one example that I um, have mentioned in other writing is um, the example of this Muslim prayer app. So there's this very popular Muslim prayer app that Muslims were using to perform their prayers. And it had a variety of features, like it would always point you in the direction of um, Mecca. And it had like a map that would show you like the closest halal um, stores if you wanted to get halal food. And um, it came out that the that this app, because it needed to point you in the direction of Mecca to to, to orient your prayers was taking location data. And that location data was being purchased by a third party company. And that third party company was selling that location data. Again, this is a globally popular Muslim prayer app. They were selling that location data to the US military. Now, why does that trigger a reaction for us? Under our traditional data governance law, the way we would sort of articulate our, our sort of moral reaction to that fact is to say, you know, oh, you, we, would, we would have to reduce that to a claim like, oh, this is wrong because the people who use this app didn't consent. <laughs> and it's like, it's wrong for so much more than that. <laughs> and what I argue, and when we think of data flows as materializing social relations, is that we can understand that this isn't, you know, there's a, this amazing quote from um, this imam in the US who says like, this isn't happening in a vacuum. We are, there are a lot of background social knowledge that we have about the relationship between the US military and Muslims all over the world. And part of what is being rematerialized here is that Muslims in using their prayer app to perform an act of faith are being inscribed in the process of oppression of their fellow Muslims. And so that is what I mean by it potentially exacerbates forms of social inequality. One very interesting thing with that example you just raised is it's a problem, the ownership of the data, and maybe this is just the end ownership of the data, is government entity and its private entities who own the data. And the problem can happen no matter who has ownership of the data, it seems, from what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, I think uh, 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 for me, like kind of an analytic benefit of understanding data flows as like data relations, data social relations is that we can get to a far more um, substantive analysis of, you know, not like, is it bad to collect data? Is it good to collect data? But like, for which purposes? <laughs> what social relations are we materializing with our data flows? Are they relations of equality where everyone has a say and where we're sort of taking into account the various competing interests that people have in being datafied? Or are they relations of oppression? And we can start to sort of categorize them and sort of decide on how we should be aligning um, or, or, or um, cashing out competing legal interests on the basis of those qu the quality of those relations. Yeah, fascinating example. On a more optimistic note, you also argue that data production and governance has tremendous untapped potential to improve people's lives, and you envision data as a democratic medium. What might such a legal regime look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start, you know, the, the prior example paints like a really grim picture, and, and I would say that, yes, um, you know, again, if, if, if data relations are just the digital materialization of our social relations, just like we can sort of think of the political project of um, kind of egalitarian social movements and egalitarian reform as equalizing, equalizing our analog social relations, so too can we think about kind of the appropriate project of reform in digital governance as 
equalizing the terms of our digital relations. Um, so I'm not against, I don't, I mean, I think it doesn't even in the 21st century make sense to say like, I'm against data relations. Like, no, that's just how we relate to one another digitally. We can relate to one another as equals, or we can re relate to one another in oppressive ways. That's just you know, as that's just society, man. So yes, I am in a way optimistic. Like I do think the appropriate project of reform is to equalize our data relations. And my point is that once we actually take into account all of the interests that I think as a conceptual matter we have in information. So as I said, you know, it's far more than just my stake in the data flows. It's everyone's stake that is sort of being acted on by this data. Well, I think once we take all of those legal interests into account, we can start to see that what we're deploying this very powerful analytic capability for is very skewed. It's skewed to the interests of the handful of entities that are actually doing our data governance right now, which is like a handful of technology companies that are mostly deploying this profound way in which we can know ourselves and know how we relate to one another and sort of deploying that for, yeah, you know, I think maybe like, at worst, very bad ends, as the Muslim app example used, but oftentimes just like extremely banal ends. And, and what I would say here is that we don't have to. We can, we can use this way of sort of understanding ourselves socially, our forms of social knowledge and social formation to answer some of the most, I think, pressing challenges that we face as we move into the 21st century. So, you know, I think we know far too much about people's individual shoe purchasing preferences, like way too much of that data, and like not enough information about our CO2 emission patterns. Like imagine if we knew as much about how I give off CO2 or how much water I'm using as we did about how likely I am to buy a pair of shoes. Like that would be really cool and probably really important to know as we head into a um, climate stressed world. We don't know that much about water usage and water formation. And we probably should know a lot more about that. That's just what I kind of mean. I think that if you actually take the in all of our interests um, into account in how we sort of um, channel and express this sort of form of self-knowledge and, and sort of social knowledge, we would be asking very different questions and answering very different questions with this kind of medium. Under this approach, how can data governance law distinguish legitimate from illegitimate data use without relying on individual adjudication? Yeah, um, this is where I can enjoy the out of being like, I'm a normative legal theorist. So my answer is that I, I look at data relations and I look at the quality of those data relations. And I ask in the like tradition of political philosophers who do relational egalitarianism, is this a data relation of equality or a data relation of inequality? And if it's a data relation of equality, I'm like, this seems legitimate. And if it's a data relation that is unequal, I'm like, this is probably not legitimate. Um, so that's just me as a sort of normative legal theorist. Um, what this practically means for people who are like actually trying to develop legal regimes, um, is of course a little bit more difficult. Um, and there's a reason that I'm in the business that I'm in and not in the business that I'm not in. But, um, you know, I mean, I think my point simply is that what we're doing right now is we're deciding whether or not something is legitimate or illegitimate on the basis of like, did Salome consent or not? But there are all sorts of these like very profound legal interests that are not being implicated when we sort of reduce it to that question of individual consent. So just as a basic conceptual matter, our, our legal consent models are not capturing all kinds of extremely relevant things. Now, what do we do about that? I think that depends on the kind of information we're talking about. So one thing that you might think is to say, 
Um, let's take, for example, um, rideshare app data. We could think that there are all sorts of labor interests by rideshare drivers that are not being expressed in how that data, those data flows are being governed. And so you could imagine a city like, let's say, the city of Boston or the city of New York saying, in order to operate um, your rideshare company in our city, you need to layer in an API. So that's a licensing scheme, basically. Like in order to operate, you, you need to get a license from the city. Um, and the licensing scheme says something like you need to layer in an API that collects all of that information that the app is collecting anyway and puts it in a repository that is managed by um, the union of drivers who are operating in this country. Uh, in this city. And so now when they're negotiating and bargaining with um, that rideshare app entity as a group of independent contractors um, or sort of as a collective, um, they can bargain <laughs> on the basis of the information that that entity is also using. Now that's expanding the set of interests at stake in that information from just the company to the city, but really also the, the, the drivers who have like a relevant stake in that information and can use it to bargain for um, maybe more beneficial terms between them and, and the rideshare entity. So again, I think there are a lot of ways in which legally you could operationalize the essential conceptual point, which is that private contractual consent is just like a bonkers way <laughs> to be regulating um, these data flows. So with all that said, there's still a myriad of lawsuits that are specifically, you know, going on right now and will probably continue to go on for the next several decades about data privacy, especially with regard to the social media tech companies. So you've laid out this beautiful egalitarian framework. And do you think that that should influence the way these lawsuits are litigated, that it should bleed into even the individualistic dimension? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, um, I think this is a really interesting question because um, I am, you know, by no means would I paint myself as a litigator. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and there are um, scholars doing great work about really trying to, like, elucidate and crystallize um, privacy harms. So Daniel Citrone, Daniel Solov have written a lot about privacy harms recently. A colleague of mine here, Chris Morton, has kind of thought about this in, in respect to um, the recent Supreme Court case in TransUnion. Um, so I, I think that the the two ideas are definitely not incompatible. I would be very open to someone who knows a lot more about that litigation arguing, oh, it's because you have these sort of horizontal, relevant horizontal relations in data, we should have, you know, um, lower evidentiary standards for certifying a class with respect to information, um, uh, in information-based or sort of um, privacy-based um, class actions. Or you could imagine um, the, the, the kinds of um, judgments, if there are remedies that are being proposed, maybe they're more um, sort of focused on um, changes to um, back-end data infrastructure so that you have to, you know, like one way of doing restitution is to open up access to researchers to get to this information. Um, so yeah, I think there are all sorts of ways that it could potentially plug in to those theories. Um, though, you know, again, I, I don't know if I would um, say I'm the primary <laughs> expert on how exactly that, that would work out. Uh, super interesting. Increasingly, litigators are integrating data into their complaints and civil rights claims for police brutality, disparate impact suits in the employment discrimination context, and other litigation efforts. Does this use of aggregate data and litigation fit into your conceptual framework? And if so, how? Uh, and finally, under your framework, what do you see as the normative implications of using data in that way? Yeah, so I love this question and I love this example because, again, I mean, I think that part of what I 
like about focusing on the data social relations is that it it doesn't take on what I often find to be like a very um, anti-data, you mean, again, so many of our data relations are marked by inequality that you can just really easily get sucked into the like, no collection ever, it's always bad. And, um, you know, again, I think that there are all of these um, data relations of equality, data relations that are trying to achieve equality for people um, that are profoundly important and um, good uses. So I would say that this absolutely fits into my framework as an example of kind of the, um, the equalizing potential of data flows used in the right way, um, or sort of to to um, you know uh, to the right ends. Um, so you know, I mean, I think this example of um, using um, data in in this kinds of um, anti-discrimination litigation makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, the other example that I use is that you know we know so much about. Um, you know, uh, employers know so much about their workers that they're surveilling and that they're sort of, you know, datifying so much about their lives. But we know so little about sort of the, the supply chains and the um, financial flows of these large companies. Could we, you know, open up sort of um, develop counterpower? I'm talking about developing counterpower using one form of our social relations, which is our data social relations. And so I think this sort of strategic litigation use is a form of developing counterpower um, digitally. And there are all sorts of other ways in which we can develop counterpower, sort of understanding our data relations as, as, as terrain on, on which we can do that. Could you maybe elaborate on other ways in which we could develop counterpower? You know, there was a recent kind of big news story that was all about tax havens and tax shelters. Companies know so much about us. We know very little about the financial flows of large companies and high net worth individuals. I think like having a very detailed granular idea of where where money is being made, where it isn't being invested, where that wealth is being stored is profoundly important for us to sort of start to even develop an accurate picture of how global inequality works physically where that operates, where it touches ground, where there is our bank accounts with untaxed wealth. Um, and using that information, that's a kind of an initial step for us to begin to articulate claims, national claims, social claims to that wealth. But as an initial step of that counterpower, we need to understand where that money is flowing. We need to understand that it even exists. And you can't get that if you don't have like the information. We don't have the information about where that money is flowing and where it's going. Um, a little bit down the line, um, or you know, two or three steps maybe removed, we can think about um, things beyond just the in and of itself, extremely profound project of developing a more equal international tax agenda. We can also think about things like providing more public health care. We've been trying to do universal health care in the United States for a long time. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but we do understand that as like an equalizing, an egalitarian agenda. A lot of people are drowning in individualized healthcare debt. If we were to universalize our healthcare, we'd sort of social develop a social insurance network to do that. What does that actually practically entail? It means we are moving away from a price mechanism in a private market to organize the production and allocation of healthcare services to a more democratically controlled, non-price mechanism way of organizing the production and allocation of healthcare. 
That means that that information signal that the price mechanism is operating or that is, that's currently sort of happening with a price signal needs to be replaced by a more democratic set of information flows that says, okay, we're not going to say use willingness to ability to pay to decide who gets the colon surgery. We're going to use some other set of indicators to decide who gets the colon surgery. That requires public data infrastructures. That requires a way for us publicly to say, how are we fairly and kind of collectively and democratically going to decide the way in which we allocate colon surgeries? <laughs> those are public, those are data infrastructures. When you move from a private market to something more democratically controlled, you need more democratic information infrastructures to replace the job of the price mechanism. And so there's any, you know, I'm using healthcare, but you could imagine education or you could imagine housing. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. <laughs> Fascinating. Was, yeah, this was fascinating and really a, a reconceptualization of, I think, what all of us think data could be and what it should be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and I, you know, we all kind of get excited about our own area of study, but I really think of it as like, this is the, this is, a, this is key terrain on which we conceptualize what 21st century governance is and what we owe one another. Thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. And if you'd like to hear more uh, from Salome, you can go read her feature in the Yale Law Journal, A Relational Theory for Data Governance. Thank you so much for being with us. And it was our pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uzoma Nkwanta is a partner at Elias Law Group, a mission-driven law firm committed to helping citizens vote by fighting voter suppression and gerrymandering across the country. Prior to joining Elias Law, Uzoma was a partner in the political law group at Perkins Coie, where he led many high-profile cases, including representing the Democratic National Committee in litigation surrounding the 2020 presidential election. Uzoma and his team use cutting-edge technology and incorporate big data into their voting rights lawsuits to help support their claims of voter suppression. To give one example, Uzoma and his team have employed cell phone metadata to highlight the racial disparities in polling place wait times and access to the polls. Welcome, Uzoma, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to be with you. We're honored to have you on. Uh, to get us started... Could you describe the types of cases you've worked on recently and how they came about to the extent that you're able? Sure. So a lot of the cases that I've worked on recently involve challenges to voter suppression bills. As some of you may have seen in the uh, immediate aftermath of the 2020 general election, you saw some unprecedented challenges to, to election results, attempts to undermine the uh, election results um, attempts to really silence the will of the people. And you saw that carry over into the following legislative cycle. And what we saw was a wave of, of omnibus voter suppression bills that attempted to really attack almost every aspect of the voting process in a way that restricted access to voting. Um, you saw restrictions to access to voting by mail. You also saw restrictions to access to early voting. Um, you saw measures that would make it easier to challenge voters, measures that would make it easier to assert broad-based challenges against hundreds of thousands of voters in one shot. We saw measures that would make it easier for poll workers, or sorry, poll monitors or poll watchers to, to have more access to voters um, and potentially create an atmosphere of intimidation. So all, all of these 
voter suppression measures um, came really in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election. And they seem to be uh, a, a way of perpetuating sort of the, the big lie that 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 these that somehow there's some some immeasurable amount of fraud that is affecting the outcome of an election, which which we know is not true because that has been debunked over and over again, and no one has really been able to present any evidence, even when given the opportunity to. A lot of the cases I'm, I'm involved in now attempt to fight back against these voter suppression laws and challenge them under various provisions, including the federal constitution, um, including federal statutory laws under the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Um, there are a number of tools at our disposal that actually provide robust protections for voters from this type of conduct. And that's, that's a lot of what, we're in, what I'm involved in right now and um, involved in litigating these cases in several states. Yeah, is there any way you envision data might be used as a tool in any of those cases? Absolutely, and and, and data is an important tool in all of those states and, and in all of these cases. Uh, and that that goes starts from general voter registration data or, or statewide voter files, which are typically accessible to the public. Um, and but then that also expands into innovative uh, forms of of data analysis that have really developed over the past few years um, that really allow us to, to illustrate the burden of certain measures on voters in ways that we just weren't able to do so before, right? So I'll give you an example. One of the, the issues that has plagued uh, a number of you know, voting rights advocates and, and others for a long time is the issue of long lines. How do you quantify long lines? How do you accurately measure long lines? Um, and how do you assess any racial disparities or any other disparities among demographic characteristics of long lines um, in, in, a, in a particular election? So for years, we relied on surveys and, and anecdotes. And, and survey, um, the survey methodology is, is helpful and, and it, 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 it did illustrate some of these racial disparities in long lines. But surveys are, are sometimes vulnerable to attack, right? Because of self-reporting biases and, and, and sometimes, you know, relying on surveys alone and not having data, it, it's sometimes you, you get the sense that, that, that it's, it's, it's not necessarily viewed as compelling in some, in some spaces. And whether you agree with that or disagree with that, I think one important development is the fact, is, is the ability now to use data from a variety of sources that were not always available to, to illustrate these disparities. Um, I recall, you know, back in 2012, when I was a much, much younger lawyer, and I was working um, for an organization that was monitoring polls in the Florida, in Florida during the, in the run up to the general election during the early voting. Um, they, they, you know, there, there are problems with long lines. Um, and I think there's at one point in the early voting process, there were a couple of counties that had um, excessive lines to the point where people at one day ended up voting um, after midnight. I think it was Miami-Dade County and Palm Beach County. And there was, there was one particular day, one particular weekend when they had folks that voted after, after midnight. And uh, I recall two experts 
um, Dan Smith and Michael Heron, um, who, who have since worked with uh, and who are fantastic. Um, but these two professors, um, they were able to determine using, I believe they used, this is many years ago, so forgive my memory here, but I believe they were able to use the check-in time um, to identify the, the check-in times to identify voters who, who checked in to their to the polling place or to the early voting site on Saturday, for instance, to vote, but were not able to vote until after midnight because they were stuck in these excessively long lines. And so, and and this happened over a two-day span, and they were able to determine for that subset of voters who checked in on the Saturday, but whose ballots showed, or, or for whom the record showed their, their ballots were cast after midnight, for that subset of voters, were there any racial disparities? And of course they found racial disparities among those voters who, were, who had to wait in those, those excessively long lines. So there were always small breakthroughs, right? Where you were able to find, you know, these types of unique events where you, were, you, you could collect data that could, clearly illustrate disparities in long lines. But for the most part, we were relying on survey analysis and different types of, sort of research to, to show and illustrate why certain voters would be weighed in line and comparing that with self-reports on the ground, et cetera. Then in a 2016 article, several experts were able to use cell phone ping data in order to assess which voters waited in line at, at specific voting locations throughout the country and assess how long they voted in line and to de determine whether there are any racial disparities among the, that category of voters. And they found that uh, voters or residents of entirely black neighborhoods uh, waited in line 20% longer to vote and residents in entire voters or, or residents from entirely black neighborhoods uh, were 74% more likely to, to spend more than 30 minutes in line than were residents from predominantly white neighborhoods. So that, that was sort of a, a, you know, a breakthrough in terms of the way that I started thinking about uh, and I don't, I'm not sure if it was a, you know, a breakthrough throughout the entire <laughs> voting rights field, but the way I started thinking about using data to, to illustrate disparities in, in, in wait times and, and how, how these disparities are impacted by the policies that are, are adopted. So since then, I, the, the data analysis has only improved and become more robust, right? Um, and I want to take a step back and, and sort of explain, because I think it'll help to explain how this, how this works. When I talk about, you know, cell phone ping data, uh, I, I think in, in layman's terms, we're really thinking about um, signals that, that are sent from cell phones that, that allow, um, that, that allow geolocation information to be, you know, transmitted from those cell phones. Right. And some of that happens on certain apps where you have your, like, when you, where you turn your geolocation permissions on. Right. So your, your cell phone then can send those signals, 
um, that that will that will that can be used to reveal the sort of the location of your of your cell phone, right? And the assumption is that you are with your cell phone. So Uzoma, when you say cell phone pings, that makes me think of, and I'm sure many of our listeners, the podcast Serial, where Adnan Syed, the uh, defendant in that case, was convicted in part on where his cell phone was at the time of the um, uh, the crime. And in that case, uh, the expert explained that cell phone pings are when someone opens up their cell phone or makes a call from their cell phone it pings to a cell tower that is in the vicinity of where that individual is. Is that an accurate way to think of cell phone pings or am I just completely uh, making this fictionalizing what these actually are? No, I think that's a great way to think about it. Uh, and that, that, that gives you an idea of, of how um, one can use that data to figure out when someone approaches a polling place and when they leave the polling place. And that's, and that's essentially the, how you want to, at least those are just the foundation of the building blocks of identifying which devices belong to voters, right? So you would, what the data allows us to do, um, just to give a very general description, is allows us to identify which devices um, are, will, will register a ping within a certain distance from a polling site. So if there's a polling place on, you know, there's a, there's a building where we know there's a polling place and people voted at this building on a particular day, you can determine using the cell phone pings when someone arrived at that polling place and when they left that polling place, right? And that period in time from when they arrived to when they left is a rough approximation of how long that person took to vote, how long that person waited in line, voted, and was able to complete the voting process before they left. And then you can measure that against other locations, other voting locations. Um, you can incorporate census block data to, to, um, to, to give, you know, fairly accurate estimates of the demographic characteristics of those voters. And, and there, there are ways to, to filter noise from that ping data, right? And what I mean by filtering noise is, you know, how do you know that someone, someone whose cell phone registers a ping, as I would say, or someone whose cell phone connects with the cell phone tower from an area near the polling place? How do you know that they are there to vote and they don't just work there? Or how do you know that they weren't going to Starbucks nearby, right? So there, there are a number of different tools that, that now have been developed to sort of filter that noise. Um, for instance, um, limiting the, the radius or the distance around the polling place at which an individual ping, for which you, you would consider an individual ping, limiting that distance helps to ensure that you're really focusing on individuals who are actually going to that building and not someone nearby. So, so if you want to limit it to you know 30 meters or 60 meters around around that that polling place building, um, two, one of the one of the tools that has been used to sort of exclude noise is to eliminate devices that registered a ping in the same site within the previous seven days or within the, the following seven days or or on non-voting days, right? So that's something um, that that 
we'll that you will see in that in that Chen um, Hagag Pope and 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 Rolla article. But um, it's 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 also important because it, it shows that there's uh, th there's an effort and there has been some success in drilling down on this on the cell phone metadata to to try to to find a subset of users that are most likely to be voters. Are there privacy concerns with using this type of data in public litigation? I think they, there absolutely are privacy concerns. And it's something that, that we take very seriously and something that we have to take into account. Um, and I think that's also part of the reason why this data has been uh, sometimes is, is difficult to, to operationalize in the, in the voting rights we were definitely sensitive to the privacy concerns, and not just privacy in the in the in the, in the sense of uh, in the sense that it's been discussed in privacy laws, but also First Amendment associational rights, right? Because sometimes the data can reveal associations between um, voters and each other, or between voters and organizations that people may not want to be revealed, and and people may have a right not to have revealed. So um, the, the, those are important concerns. Um, the data itself. You know, we've talked about it within the context of long lines, but we can use it for much more than that. It, it's it's really a remarkable, interesting, um, you know, data set when you're able to to get this information for a particular voting site or particular jurisdiction, because it also tells you, you know, when people vote, right? And one thing that you're seeing uh, across the country in a lot of these states that are that are implementing um, restrictive voting laws, one thing that you're seeing is you, you, restrictions to certain aspects of in-person voting as well, right? And maybe re some jurisdictions may reduce voting hours um, in the evening, right? Or some jurisdictions may reduce the number of days of early voting. Um, or as we see in Texas, you know, eliminate the ability to, to conduct 24-hour um, voting which um, you know Harris County offered during the 2020 uh, election. Um, you know, voters in Harris County were able, in some instances, were able to cast a ballot, you know, late into the evening, and that that a lot that gave people more access to the voting process. Now, we can. There are a lot of ways to determine who takes advantage of those voting opportunities, but sometimes the data doesn't always get us there. Right. It really depends on the data collection practices um, of the particular jurisdiction. This uh, the, the the cell phone metadata and the analysis that we've you know started to explore really gives you a lot of flexibility in in determining or identifying the the types of voters that take advantage of these opportunities, and again whether there are any um, racial disparities among these voters, and when and that level of information just ensures that we are able to more effectively um, vindicate these voters' rights, and we're able to more effectively identify instances in which these state laws have have dis disparately impacted um, voters of color. When you're using the data, are you thinking of data as relational? That is how groups interact with one another in our society, or are you looking at individual level data? 
I think that the, the relational aspect of this data is hugely important because it, it the purpose of, of this analysis is twofold. I mean, one, it, it demonstrates that there are long lines, um, which are always a problem, right? The, I think the, the Presidential um, Commission on Election Administration um, determined that no one should have to wait in line for, for more than um, 30 minutes, right? That was the recommendation. So, and, and we're clearly not meeting that. So th that's, that's one important, you know, outcome of this data. But also, it demonstrates that there are clear racial disparities. And we have to understand the disparities in the, in, in the opportunities to vote and access to voting and understand what causes these disparities. And the aggregate data that we have that, that can accurately measure how long voters are waiting in line, I think is one of the best ways to do that. And, and it's one, and, and being able to use, to provide that information um, is of significant social value. And, you know, in that, in the paper you're just discussing, I think, you know, one of the, one of the elements that, um, that the author mentioned that, that needs to be considered is the social value of, of some of this, um, some of this data usage. And, and when we think about that and we think about sort of the ways in which we try to make the voting experience more accessible to um, people of all demographics, to black voters, to Latinos, to, to young voters, um, have been able to accurately collect and use aggregated data is, is essential to ensuring um, equity in, in the voting process. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been extremely illuminating, and it's a fantastic application of uh, Ms. Villune's thesis. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thank you to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful people at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.